If you have your Bibles or your device, turn to Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 1. Today we're going to talk about a parable that I call, That's Not Fair. I mean, yes, that's not fair. No, that's grace. We're going to talk about the difference between fairness and grace. Now, it seems like there seems to be a sense of fairness sort of woven into reality. I read a story about a lady in England, Dee Blythe is her name, she lives in Essex. Burglars broke into her apartment and stole her valuables, her computer, her television, several other things, but they also found a Ziploc bag with powder in it with Charlie written on it. Of course, in England, that's a street name for cocaine, so they took it too. But Charlie was the name of her dog who she had had cremated. And this is what she reported to the newspaper. I think it's only fair. It was a horrible thing knowing they were in my house, but the idea of them trying to get high on a dead dog's ashes certainly made me feel a bit better. (laughs) That seems only fair. I had a bald preacher friend, Chet Haney. Some of you might know him. God took him to heaven this past year. He was bald as a billiard ball and had been for a long time before it was fashionable for men to shave their heads. And he used to joke about it. He'd say, you know, I don't need a comb, I just need a wash rag. He said, I got a crew cut and the crew left. (laughs) But I've heard him say this little poem many times. He says, God is good, God is fair, some men get get brains and some others get hair. Well, it is true that God is good, but I want you to know today that God is not fair, and that's a good thing. So much in life is not fair, don't you agree? It's just not fair. It's not fair that somebody can eat a gallon of Haagen-Dazs and not gain a pound. It's not fair. It's not fair that that person got a promotion at work, and even though you've been working there longer, it's just not fair. You know what? It is just not fair that some high school dropout, coke-snorting movie star will make one more money on one movie than all the teachers in Nacogdoches put together. That's just not fair. You know, so much in life is not fair. In fact, we try to make things fair. There are laws on fairness in lending and other things like that. But God's going to teach us today that there is something much better than fairness, and that is grace. So before you read chapter 20, verse 1, I want to remind you that the verses and chapters were only put into the text of the Bible in the 13th century, so I don't really think there should be a division at chapter 20, because ease back up to chapter 19, verse 30. Here's the principle that Jesus states, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now glance down to chapter 20, verse 16. He repeats it like it's two bookends to this parable. So the last will be first, and the first last. That's a paradox. You know what a paradox is? It's not two pediatricians. (laughs) A paradox is a statement that on the surface seems to be contradictory, but when you dig below the surface, there's deep truth. So now that we have the bookends of the principle, Let's let Jesus tell the story, beginning in chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now, your Bible may say the parable of the vineyard workers. Remember, those weren't in the text either. 
I call this the parable of the generous landowner. Like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing what the workers on one denarius, let's just say that's about $100. It's one day pay for one, work, for one man. He sent them into his vineyard for the day. And when he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, hey, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and at about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, hey, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. Well, you also go into my vineyard, he told them. When the evening came, which is only about an hour later, six o'clock. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. Some of the five different groups. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius, a hundred dollars. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, that's not fair. These last men put on one hour and you made them equal to us. Who bore the burden of the day's work in the burning heat? I love his reply, verse 13. He replied to one of them, hey friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you agree with me on a denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. So there are five groups of workers. Some started at six in the morning. Some started at five in the afternoon. They all got paid exactly the same. And when he paid that last group who expected to get more than one denarius, he said, hey, I can pay you what I want to pay you. I'm a generous guy. And so in our earthly kingdom, we seek fairness. But this is not about the kingdom of earth. Jesus said this is about the kingdom of heaven. So let's learn four lessons about grace. First of all, there's a lesson about timing. And the lesson is this, it's never too late to come to God. Now, I think those 12-hour workers represent a lot of us who have been in the family of God for many, many years. We're not newcomers. Uh, take me, for instance, uh, I've always been in a Baptist church. I started going to a Baptist church nine months before I was born. And I was in everything. I mean, I was in sunbeams, I was in RAs, GAs. Youth choir, children's choir, Sunday school, training union, everything. I've always been in church. And then I was saved when I was nine years old. And then at age 17, God called me to preach. So I've always been in the family of God, it seems like. Maybe not a child of God, but in the family of God. And so there may be a lot of you who are the same way. But then there are other people who come into the kingdom later in their life. And there are these things called deathbed salvations, deathbed salvation. Can you think of one in the Bible? Of course, the thief on the cross, as he's dying, he says to this bleeding 
Savior beside him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that took faith to look over the bleeding man on a cross and say, you have a kingdom and I believe you have a future enough to remember me. And Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. Few people get saved after the age of 18. Statistics show that about 85% of everybody who comes to Christ comes to Christ before age 18. That's why we focus in your church and our churches on children's ministry and on student ministry because we want to reach them with the gospel as early as we can. You know, in my family, my mother's mother, we called her Meemaw. She was the sweet lady who made the best banana pudding and she went to church every Sunday, and she was a godly woman. She was about four foot eleven, and just demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit before I even knew what it was. I loved her. Now, her husband, Paul Paul, he's a big, rough, tough man, about six four, big man, worked at the paper mill in Panama City. He never had time for God, never went to church. He said, I'm going to leave that to the women and to the children. And I remember when Meemaw died first, I did her funeral. And then a few years after that, Paul developed congestive heart failure. And he was in an assisted living facility in Panama City, Florida. At the time, we were serving a church in northern Alabama. And I was just praying one day, and the Lord just laid on my heart, you need to go talk to Paul about Jesus. So I drove all the way from north Alabama, Panama City Beach, Panama City. And I went into his room. And I just began to talk to him. I said, Papa, don't you want to go to heaven where Meemaw is right now? And big tears rolled down his cheeks. And he said, yes, I really do. And that day I led <clears throat> my Papa to faith in Jesus Christ. And about a month later, I did his funeral as well. And, you know, everybody knows there's deathbed repentance. And there are some people, they're going to try to play that game. They're going to say, you know what, I'm going to live the way I want to for all my life. And then right before I die, right before the end, I'm going to fall on my knees and repent. Problem is, folks, you don't know when the end is. Only God does. I did two funerals this week in Tyler. One was a 92-year-old man who was in hospice for two weeks. And another was a man who broke his neck falling off an ATV in an accident. Tragic. Wasn't expecting to die. So you never know. So that's the first lesson. Here's the second lesson. A lesson about grace. All who respond to God's invitation will receive all there is to receive. At the end of the day, everyone got $100. Now, for us in the Christian life, what does the, the denarius, the payment, represent? What, what do we get when we come to Christ? Well, you say we get heaven. No, <clears throat> heaven's just a benefit. Will we get forgiveness? No, that's just a benefit as well. I want you to remember again to that thief on the cross, remember what Jesus said to him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So what do you think are the most important words in that promise Jesus made? I think it's the words, not paradise, it is with me. You see, salvation and the denarius for us is a living personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But still, all those of you who've served the Lord a long time, you say, well, you know, but sometimes it just doesn't seem fair. I've labored for the Lord all these years, and then some of these people come in sort of later in life, and 
Uh, I think it's not fair that I don't get rewarded more than they will get rewarded. Well, you will. Because the Bible does speak of rewards in heaven. At the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive rewards in the form of crowns. But what do you think you're going to do with that crown? You think you're going to strut around heaven with that crown on? Saying, look at me, look how big my crown is. Look how many jewels there are in my crown. And you look at somebody that just made it into heaven. Hey, that's a tiny little crown you got there. But that's all right, you know, the main thing is you made it here. Is that going to be our attitude? No. You're not going to wear those crowns very long because the Bible says in the book of Revelation that we're going to take those crowns and we're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. You know, Philip Yancey is a great author. He's written a book that I recommend called What's So Amazing About Grace? And he comments on this parable. And I quote, The workers' discontent aroused from the scandalous mathematics of grace. I love that phrase. They would not accept that their employer had the right to do what he wanted with his money when it meant paying scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. Many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers, and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point, and pay attention, that God dispenses gifts, not wages. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. So, you know, when somebody asks me, and I'm asked this quite often, how are you doing? My standard answer is I'm doing better than I deserve. Because I deserve death and hell, but instead I'm living under grace. I'm better than I deserve. Hey, you want wages? Okay, I'll give you wages. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I've said before, but eternal life is not just living forever. That would be boring. Eternal life is knowing God, having a living relationship with Him. And in John 17, 3, in that high priestly prayer before Jesus went to the cross, He prayed this in John 17, 3. It's like He said, let me give you a definition of eternal life. And this is eternal life. Knowing you and knowing the one you have sent, that is what eternal life is. So here's lesson number three, and it's a lesson about authority. God is sovereign. That means He reigns. He has a right to do whatever He wants to do. Now, I love the part where they complain to Him and gripe to Him, and He just smiles and says, hey, it's my money. It's my vineyard. I can do with it what I want to. And there may be some of you who are business owners or work in a business and responsible for a business, and you say, that is no way to run a business. You're right. But we're not talking about a business here. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we've got to understand that our ways are so far beyond God's ways that we can't even comprehend His ways sometimes. One of my favorite verses is from Isaiah 55, 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts 
higher than your thoughts. God just does things differently than we do them here in the world. And that's the good thing about the kingdom of heaven. It's not based on fairness. It's based on grace. I read one time a testimony of a seminary student. If you don't know, seminary is like graduate school for preachers. He was about to take a final exam in one of his seminary classes. And he took his notes and he really studied his notes that the professor had made. They, they did have a textbook, but the professor never used it. And so he, he knew the notes backward and forward. And he went into the class that day expecting to ace the exam. And then the professor said, today's final exam will be from the textbook. And this guy, his name was uh, Michael Scherer. He, he said, oh, I'm in trouble. I only studied the notes. And then the professor said, I'm going to pass out the exam, but I want you to keep them face down on the table until I tell you to turn them over. And so Michael Scherer, he's just sweating, thinking, you know what? This is not fair. But then he turned the test over, and it was a fill-in-the-blank test, and every blank had been filled in with the correct answer already. And the professor wrote this note on the test. This is your final exam. All the answers are correct. You will receive a perfect score on the final exam. The reason you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did or didn't do in preparing for the exam did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. When I read that, I said, I wish I had a professor like that. (laughs) I'm sure Michael Shura took a lot of classes on theology. But I think he learned more about grace that day than in any class he took on theology. So finally, number four, we come to the final lesson. A lesson about attitude. Be thankful for God's blessings without comparing yourselves to others. You see, the 6 a.m. workers, the the long day, all day, 12-hour workers, they grumbled, they complained against the landowner. Hey, it's not fair that you paid them as much as you paid us. They were jealous. They were comparing themselves to him, to the others. And let me just tell you, in the Christian life, comparison is toxic to your soul. I heard a story once, or read a story about it, President Abraham Lincoln, who was walking down the street one day with his sons, Willie and Tab, in each hand, and they were just screaming and arguing and just weren't happy, you could tell. And somebody asked President Lincoln, what's wrong with your boys? He said, what's wrong with my boys is what's wrong with the world. I have three chestnuts, and each one wants two. He said, actually, each one wants three. You see, sometimes we are jealous when other people seem to get more than we have. Here's what it says in James 5, 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge, Jesus, is standing at the door. So, you know, I've met people who are like that. They're humbly grateful. And I've met a lot of others who are grumbly hateful. Which one are you? Can you think of somebody who grumbled and complained because they compared? Well, we talked about, remember the parable of the loving father? People call it the prodigal son. Remember the older brother? How he grumbled and complained? 
said to his dad, Dad, you never killed a fatted calf for me. I've been with you all this time. I never left you. And this son of yours, he didn't even say my brother, this son of yours has gone off and spent all your money, which is not true, on high living and prostitutes. We don't know if that's true. And it's just not fair. You know, I met church members sometimes who are kind of that way with maybe new people that come into the church and take their pew or take their parking place. What are you doing here? I know several years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago at Green Acres, we really had an influx of a lot of young people, college students and teenagers and things like that. And so a lot of people came in with tats and piercings and guys would come to church with shorts, baggy shorts and flip-flops. And I remember I had a lady come up to me and complain about it, grumble about it. Said, I don't like these people in my church. And I said, well, it's a good thing it's not your church, sweetheart. (laughs) This church belongs to Jesus. And he loves those people. So what's the takeaway from this lesson? Well, just as the landowner showed grace and generosity, we can show grace and generosity to others. And we can learn not to complain and grumble about what God has or not or hasn't given to other people. And when it comes to your Christian service, no matter what age you are, let me just say this. It's always too soon to quit. But if you don't know the Lord, let me say it's never too late to come. So who do you think was maybe the greatest baseball player who ever lived? I'm going to nominate Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb, who played for 30 years, started playing when he was 19 years old for the Detroit Tigers, set 90 major league records, many of which are still in place. His lifetime batting average was 367. Nobody hits 367 anymore in one season. Last time somebody hit over 366 was like in 2004. His lifetime batting average was 367. He batted over 400 four different seasons. He stole home plate from third base 54 times, which is a record that will never be broken. You say, well, was he really fast? Well, yeah, he was pretty fast, but also he was mean. (laughs) He was. The opposing team would watch him as he filed his cleats razor sharp before the game. And then if you dared to get in his way when he was stealing a base, he just put those cleats right in your midsection. There are pictures, if you want to Google it, of Ty Cobb sliding into second base, but he's not nowhere near the base. He's in the midsection of the second baseman. No wonder they just said, here, here, take the base. <laughs> so he was a great, great baseball player. But by all accounts, he was a mean, wicked man who was a terrible racist by the remarks he made. And so finally, he got through with his playing career and retired to Atlanta because he was from Georgia. And toward the end of his life, as he was getting very sick, he called for a Presbyterian preacher that he knew to come talk to him. And the preacher was a name, Pastor J.R. Richardson. He made two visits to him, and on the first visit, Ty Cobb wasn't too interested. But later, J.R. Richardson would write about this in Christianity Today. He said, two days later, I returned to find that the Holy Spirit 
had been working in his heart. I explained God's plan of salvation and the need for repentance. He replied that he wished to put his complete faith and trust in Christ. And here's the rest of the story that has not been published. When he was in the hospital in Atlanta just a few weeks before he died, Bobby Richardson, you remember Bobby Richardson played second base for the Yankees with Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and Ryogi Berra, was a great Christian, had witnessed to Ty Cobb for many years, but he hadn't responded. Bobby Richardson went to visit him in his hospital room in Atlanta just a couple of weeks before he died. And I know this story because he came to Green Acres to a men's sports banquet and he told it and I heard it with my own ears. He asked Ty Cobb, Ty, Ty is, it, is it true that you have given your life to Christ? Ty Cobb said yes. And then he said this. He was only 74 years old. You tell the boys, I'm sorry, I waited until the bottom of the ninth inning to turn to God. I wish I'd done it in the top of the first. So what inning is it for you? So what about that thief being in heaven? Think that's fair? What about Ty Cobb? You think that's fair? What about that death row inmate in Texas correction system who gives his life to Christ just before his lethal injection and he makes it to heaven? What are you going to think when you see that person there? You may be tempted to say, that's just not fair. Well, I want to say, no, it's not fair. That's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're glad that you're not handing out wages and giving us what we deserve. Instead, we thank you for the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here or watching on television, and they've never given their heart and life to you, that I pray that today will be the day that they place their faith and trust in you, no matter how old they are, and even if they think it's too late, let them know it's never too late. So if you're in this room or you're watching on television and we'd like to pray a prayer of faith to receive Christ in your heart, you can pray a prayer like this. You can just repeat it silently after me to the Lord. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. I will never be good enough to earn heaven. I need your gift of forgiveness. I need your gift of eternal life. Right now, I place my faith in you. And I will live for you forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you're on campus, let somebody know. Before you leave today, if you're watching online, be sure you contact somebody on the church this week and let them know about their decision so they can help you grow in Christ.